Welcome to In Focus. I am Rom Gaioso, your host. War in continental Europe. Millions of people displaced, a continent and a world in crisis. What a shock! But what is it a surprise? In today's show, we're welcoming two very distinguished members of the World Future Studies Federation, WFSF, to discuss the situation in Ukraine. Folks, the future is arriving a lot faster than we think. So uh, let's get going. Uh, before we get started, let's go over the show in focus and why we are here. All righty. So this show is a result of a partnership between WFSF and yours truly, Futures Television. We're joining forces to advance sharing of information and knowledge of future topics. Our focus is on future studies, foresight, and futures literacy. What should you expect? Well, you will gain direct access to knowledge and information produced by the top minds in this field. WFSF is a UNESCO and UN consultative partner and a truly global NGO with members in over 60 countries. Today, we have two top researchers who will be discussing a very current topic. So what should you expect to gain from this show? Well, today we discuss some alternatives for the outcome in the war in Ukraine in more detail. The experts will discuss some practical implications of this conflict. And you will know firsthand what they expect will happen in the near future. So before I welcome our guests, don't be shy. The chat windows are indeed open, so feel free to say hi. Okay, so let me say a few words about Dr. Epaminondas Christophilopoulos first. Dr. Christophilopoulos is the Chief Scientific Advisor, Special Secretariat for Strategic Foresight, the Presidency of the Greek Government. He is the chairholder of the UNESCO Chair on Futures Research at the Foundation for Research and Technology, Hellas, fourth, and Head of Unit of Foresight and Tools at the Praxi Network. So um, let's welcome uh, Dr. Christophilus to the show. Hi there, how are you doing today? Hi, Rom, thank you. I'm, I'm perfectly fine. Thank you for inviting me here tonight, today. Thank you for being here. And, and now I hope I did not do too bad of a job at the introduction. <laughs> But please, if I miss anything important, could you please say a few words about yourself? Well, I think you were perfectly right. Um, actually, this is what I'm doing. Uh, part of my day life is uh, focusing on the work for the Greek government and the new uh, Secretariat for Strategic Foresight. 
And then the rest is uh, working for the UNESCO Chair on Futures Research. Uh, I'm chairing the chair and uh, we are working on different projects and of course promoting the concept of futures literacy and uh, how we can develop this skill. Great. Uh, so, so good to have you here. So uh, let's get started. And I would like to talk a little bit about scenarios. So what are scenarios or scenario planning? Uh, okay, thank you so much. Uh, scenario is maybe the most popular or the most uh, well-known part of our uh, foresight uh, work. Uh, in the context of foresight, uh, scenarios are consistent pictures, descriptions, stories uh, about the future. Um, usually uh, stories that are linked to the present with uh, cause-effect logics. So this is what is about in the field of foresight, but I must I must say that is only uh, one approach uh, to deal with the future. So it's not uh, everything. Now um, the most maybe more, the most popular use of foresight is uh, what we call scenario planning, and is actually using scenarios for uh, building a long term strategy, uh, for uh, planning ahead. And um, I guess this is the most uh, well-known uh, use of scenarios today. Okay, so it seems that uh, really uh, they're used to inform policymakers uh, about futures and, and uh, futures alternatives or uh, potential alternatives, right? So uh, it seems there's a lot of work involved here. So are scenarios some kind of a panacea? So, um, what are the limitations of scenarios? I'm, I'm really happy uh, that you're asking me this because this is something that uh, after some time in the foresight business, you realize that uh, scenarios are not a panacea. Uh, indeed, uh, I have the feeling, especially recently, that uh, talking about scenarios is, uh, is some kind of a hype uh, word, uh, similar to megatrends that everybody is talking about. Uh, the main problem, I think, uh, in our community is how we can uh, make scenarios uh, be translated into policy making. And uh, I'm saying this because foresight is intrinsically uh, related with action. Uh, I don't think it makes sense to only uh, imagine the future if you, if you cannot find the way to translate this imagination to action uh, today. So this is a very uh, important thing. And I think uh, one important problem is something that we have to deal in our community. Uh, we must find uh, ways, new ways to translate scenarios uh, into policy making. I mean, the, from the beginning, the production of scenarios was a very uh, useful tool to become more future-proof, to help policymakers to see the future, to feel the future. And uh, I think, and this is what the community is doing today, is trying to find new ways of how we can make these scenarios uh, go into action. And uh, some ways we use is, uh, we use serious games uh, and we put uh, the findings of the scenarios in these serious games. Or uh, I have seen cases uh, creating, uh, using virtual reality to create a virtual world. So, uh, participants can experience the futures. Uh, but these are only a few ways. Um, I think futures literacy is also 
addressing this problem. So finding ways uh, to better feel what you read or uh, understand what are the scenarios about. Great. So let's uh, change topics a little bit and let's talk about the current situation in Europe right now. So we're now facing you know, new global challenges uh, related to the complex or the complexity and the impacts of the war in Ukraine. Uh, so as we're discussing um, scenarios, and there's probably very many, right? Are there any scenarios or other foresight studies uh, that actually had foreseen the Russian invasion? Um, this is something that we are actually um, addressing right now. And when I'm saying addressing, I mean, we are studying uh, in the government to see what kind of scenarios have been out there before uh, for, the, for Russia, for Ukraine, and uh, why we didn't pay any attention to these scenarios if those scenarios were successful. So um, I must say that I have studied uh, in, in detail at least uh, six, seven uh, works. And uh, in most of the cases, they have produced really useful scenarios. And in most of these scenarios, uh, they are describing the researchers, the case of a war uh, or an invasion. Uh, I don't know how you prefer to say it, of Russia uh, to Ukraine. Um, except few cases that the war was not foreseen. Uh, I can discuss it why I believe that uh, in these cases the scenario work wasn't much successful. But in most of the cases, we have seen uh, this uh, possibility to be very clearly described, uh, especially in one work of uh, the National Technical University of Ukraine. Uh, actually, this uh, scenario is actually the most probable scenario. So uh, the people in, in Ukraine actually were expecting this uh, possibility and underlying that uh, the government and the country has to pay attention on this uh, scenario. Uh, what is also important because uh, uh, some these scenarios are, are recent, so uh, Russia has already invaded uh, in uh, Crimea and uh, already have annexed some, some regions of Ukraine. But what is also very important is uh, there were scenarios back in 2009 that actually describing uh, the case of Russia invaded Ukraine. And uh, I'm referring to a scenario produced uh, by in Finland in the context of the Finnish Business and Policy Forum in 2009, where uh, in these global scenarios, uh, Russia was invading Ukraine at some point in the future. So uh, the information was there, uh, but probably for some reason, because of the reason we have discussed before, policymakers uh, couldn't visualize and take action uh, based on those uh, scenarios. So th that's an important uh, point to make. Do you think that uh, the inaction was because was this is uh, either absurd or or uh, or they thought it wasn't uh, likely, even though there was war in the east of Ukraine, or they just um, thought it wouldn't happen. So what are some of the reasons why you think there was no connection between thought and action? I believe this is one of the most uh, common uh, problems in, in foresight, is uh, how we can make, again, this kind of outcome of our work to, uh, to, to alarm policymakers. And uh, I understand that in many cases, it's very difficult to take action in advance. 
Um, so that was also the case here. It was probably it was foreseen, uh, or it was perceived by the policymaker as, as a very uh, low probability event. And uh, probably it was more convenient not to, to do anything, not to take any action and uh, do business as usual, which is the easier way to proceed. Uh, and this is something that is more uh, something we have to discuss. Uh, the foresight researchers and then the policymakers, how we can make more use of this work. Okay, so uh, you know, scenarios, uh, or at least the good ones, are accompanied by a good set of indicators, right? So um, the massing of troops or the mounting of troops uh, in Ukraine's border was probably some indication <laughs> that some military action um, would be imminent or, or fast approaching. I remember the exercises at the border, and then they say, well, we're just uh, passing by, I guess. So uh, uh, what kind of uh, indicators should be looking uh, for going forward? Well, um, well, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, the indicators is, is something that can be really useful in a scenario. Uh, I have the feeling that it depends uh, when we are producing the scenario, who is going to use it and uh, in which way. So in, in some cases, indicators might not be uh, relevant. Uh, in, in security scenarios, uh, in most of the cases, because they study uh, too many parameters uh, in a very detailed way, usually it's very easy to, to, to take into account some specific indicators that can be uh, an alarm of uh, which way the future is going. In, in this case, I can refer to a very recent uh, study that was actually produced only a few weeks before the invasion. And it was very useful that they have indicated some specific actions uh, from the Russian side. Uh, it was like uh, the movement of troops during the night, where in the previous cases the troops were moving during the day. Uh, some escalation in the rhetoric of uh, Russian uh, policymakers and especially of uh, President Putin. And uh, also some uh, a change in the society, in, in the Russian society. It, it proved that all the previous uh, actions from the, from, from the government, this kind of actions like military invasions, like in Georgia, in Ukraine before, has actually increased the popularity of, of, of Putin. So this kind of uh, aspects could be indicators of, uh, of, of such a negative scenario. Yeah, so we're always looking at the scenarios and uh, uh, what to look for next. So are they amassing troops in the border of Poland? Are they uh, doing a, a friendly exercise near the Baltics? So we, we don't know exactly, but uh, what kind of indicators we should be looking forward you know, uh, to see or to at least use to understand. So we, you know, we have so far uh, focused uh, uh, in Ukraine, right? So let's move from Ukraine uh, into Russia. So what about uh, foresight in Russia proper, right? And the uh, Russian views of the future. Uh, so what should we expect going forward? Actually, th this was uh, another thing that we have been uh, following, especially during these days, because that was also a very important indicator of uh, uh, the general uh, uh, feeling, the general uh, strategy of the Russian government. So um, I'm going to refer to a very uh, an excellent study, actually, from the European Union Institute uh, for Security Studies. So what they did is actually they studied uh, 
the foresight uh, work that uh, has been done in, in, in Russia during the last uh, decade. Uh, the main takeaways, and that was a very important aspect, is uh, one is that uh, uh, foresight work in Russia usually uh, have a common agreement on one specific aspect, that the world is changing and it's changing in a bad way for Russia. So they have this kind of very pessimistic uh, geopolitical view. Uh, another aspect, common aspect in the foresight work in, in Russia was that uh, there is a lot of focus on the energy field and on defense. And uh, the, another important thing is that actually what the foresight uh, work uh, the outcome of the foresight work in Russia is actually absorbing uh, what certain thinkers of the Russian political scene are believing about the future of Russia. So what we read in Russian uh, foresight work is usually uh, the outcome of the thoughts of uh, the big heads in the political system in Russia. So by following this work, we can in a quite good extent, uh, understand what the Russian uh, political leaders are thinking and uh, maybe what kind of action uh, they would take in the future, as we have seen recently. And so, uh, not asking you to read the tea leaves, but we have a situation where um, the West was fearful of uh, Soviet Union, so we moved troops to the East. And then the Russians, uh, we are fearful of the advancing West. So they move troops to the West. So we have some kind of a bad outcome because uh, we are both suspicious of each other and therefore we will place troops and increase tensions and therefore kind of our fears uh, materialize into bad policy making and bad policy making results in quote preventive wars or trying to prevent the other side from winning. Well, I cannot really foresee what is going to happen in uh, such a short term. Uh, I believe that uh, we're going to have, uh, uh, I mean, the, the operations will, will end. I don't know how quickly, but rather quickly, I would say, uh, we'll find, uh, we'll reach some, uh, some level of, uh, of stability. Uh, but then what is more important is to, to, to see what, uh, to, to discuss what might happen in, in the, uh, longer term future, because all this uh, situation that we are experiencing today will change definitely uh, the the future that we have been uh, thinking before. So we will probably see a new Cold War situation that will uh, develop. I don't know for how long, but definitely for some years. Uh, so it's it's going to be a, a new, a very interesting uh, topic, research topic for for our field and uh, especially uh, in Europe. Now, in terms of uh, Cold War, uh, are we talking about situations where you envision like West Germany and East Germany? So a uh, real partition of Ukraine or split of Ukraine into bits and pieces, uh, half to the West? half to the east so a uh, uh, two ukraine or a multi-ukraine scenario is that what we're talking about definitely these are of all very plausible and uh, possible scenarios and this is not something new uh, if i refer back to the studies especially of the uh, polytechnic university of kiev uh, they have very clear descriptions of this kind of possible situations for their own country actually um, so this is something that it was very very uh, probable 
um, it is now after all these things have happened it's um, the big question is how we didn't see this uh, coming i mean in the west and this is for me very important to to discuss it internally and see what uh, went wrong uh, in uh, between the policy makers in in the west Okay, so we have a couple of uh, questions in respect to uh, scenario planning proper, right? So uh, first one, uh, Dimitri Ivanov. So considering how many people, structures, experts, NGOs are involved in preparing forecasts, even from the point of view of probability theory, you know, maybe uh, someone should have predicted this uh, to the T. I mean, the the specific uh, steps that the uh, Russians made and the lack of action in the West. So, so was that the case? Was, was quote, somebody right somewhere? Actually, yes. Although in our field, we don't actually look for the perfect forecast, but we are um, we, we, we accept that it's very almost improbable to uh, foresee the future, but is uh, our work is mostly to open the mind uh, to different directions and to different uh, alternative futures. But uh, sometimes, if you are lucky enough, you might actually foresee uh, the one future that is going to happen. So in this case, there were some very interesting uh, cases uh, with uh, this scenario, like the one from the University of Kiev. Uh, if we go back from these uh, these global scenarios produced in Finland by uh, for the Finnish Business and Policy Forum, and also there was another scenario back uh, scenario work produced uh, in 2008-2010 uh, from the Jamestown uh, Foundation that they have actually also foreseen uh, the invasion uh, of Russia and Ukraine, and they just. Uh, uh, thought about this because of the previous uh, occupations in uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. So they just made the very logical uh, uh, thought that uh, Russia will continue to, to move in the same direction, occupying different uh, uh, areas of the previous Soviet Union. Now, uh, kind of a technical question along the same line. So the people who predicted the war, right, Finland and Ukraine, both countries were already at war at some point in time with either the Soviet Union or with Russia. So uh, part of our, the outcomes that we believe are they intrinsically connected with our human experience. So Finland experienced a war in the past, so it, it thinks a war is possible in the future. Ukraine experienced a war in the past, therefore they think a war is possible or potential in the future. This is very this is very correct. Uh, our experiences are affecting definitely the way we imagine the future and uh, definitely people in Ukraine that they have experiencing the situation in the country, uh, the Maidan Square revolution and uh, what was happening during the last years uh, between uh, Russia and Ukraine probably was much easier for them to foresee the future. Uh, I remember another study that we have uh, studied, a study that was uh, uh, organized in Germany for a German uh, party, and they missed completely everything. They, couldn't, they didn't find any possibility of a war scenario. Uh, if you look closer, closer uh, of how this study was produced, you will find that they have a very small uh number of experts most of them europeans so one uh, or two russians and one from ukraine i believe 
So it was very difficult for this small group of people to actually imagine uh, this uh, war scenario. Uh, so it's very much related to have a big participatory group to collect ideas and images and also people that are actually have a very good experience of what is happening in the area. Okay, so we have a different kind of question uh, still on the technical aspect. So it really is from that Nguyen. And so the challenge is that even that, that clock or the broken clock could still be correct twice a day, right? So the questions are that whether uh, their predicted scenarios are correct, but what's the percentage of correct predicted scenarios versus incorrectly predicted scenarios. So do we have a sense of how much false positive and false negative do these scenarios provide? So if it produces a lot of false positives, then it might be why policymakers don't take it seriously? Well, actually, uh, this is a very a key question that we receive very often. Um, uh, if I can say again, uh, we don't try to predict the future. Nobody can predict the future. Whatever tool you are going to use, if you are doing, uh, if you are using artificial intelligence, or uh, if you collect big data and you you build models, um, it has been proven so far that uh, the best way to actually explore the future is to work with uh, different foresight tools and methods and maybe produce scenarios. So the, the focus is not here to uh, to foresee the correct future, but to be prepared for different alternative futures. So this is the way we use scenarios in foresight. We use scenarios to build uh, future-proof strategies, to change our practices today and become more future-proof in order to be more resilient for alternative futures. So this is the basic idea, is not to foresee and uh, be successful, but to be ready and successful in different alternative futures. Okay, so we have other questions that are associated with um, perspective. So the first one is, so what did the Russian foresight specialists predict in regards to the Ukraine invasion or the war? So from their point of view, do we have any information what they thought? Yeah, um, from what I have read, I haven't read the specific scenarios of war, but uh, the, the basic feeling, the basic idea is that the world is changing, the world is changing in a bad way for Russia, and we need to take advantage of this and take action, uh, military action, and change, uh, also take advantage of how the Western uh, uh, liberal world is, let's say, is uh, is is not going well. Uh, the, the liberal democracy has the problems. So that was the basic idea in the Russian uh, work uh, of foresight. So they didn't. I didn't read at least myself specific scenarios of how the world is going to evolve. Ah, Rome, you are muted. Sorry. So uh, I want to go back to the... So this question regards to um, indicators. So this escalation or idea of progression. So uh, after the uh, annexation of Crimea, uh, perhaps should we have expected you know, further escalation or other attempts to annex something else or a more aggressive warlike potential outcomes? Yeah, uh, I think I think we are open to everything. Uh, the annexation of Crimea in 2014 was a very big alarm. Uh, 
we didn't hear this. Uh, we were uh, sleeping in in the West. We we took some measures, but those measures were not effective. Were very uh, modest, and uh, uh, what happened afterwards uh, proved that uh, we need to react more aggressively and uh, very clearly. Uh, so uh, red lines. Uh, so this is what happened now. Um, yeah. I don't know if I, if I understood correctly the question. Yeah, so no, the issue is, I guess, with regards to uh, escalation. So if uh, they take the Crimea, then potentially they will take some other parts. So they took the Donbass and perhaps yeah. they will try to take some. Some Again, the idea was indicators of okay. a potential um, yeah. higher yeah. level. Well, of escalation is a very probable scenario at the moment. I mean, we don't see at least any any other way well, I mean, I mean, in, in Ukraine, I'm not talking outside Ukraine, but in, oh, within okay. Ukraine, uh, I, what we see and what we read is that uh, Russia will only uh, finalize the operation uh, when they reach their objective, which is probably uh, take all the eastern part of Ukraine or maybe uh, put uh, take all the whole country and put a government that is is going to be very friendly to the Russian uh, government. So it remains to see what exactly is the objective. I don't believe anybody has a very clear uh, hypothesis. Uh, I don't know anybody knows what uh, Putin is thinking at the moment. I think the problem is not that we don't know what uh, the end game is, but we suspect that they don't know what the end game is. So I think that's more serious than we don't know. Is I think they uh, might know either so uh the next question is about so this is a, a geopolitical uh, scenario so uh martin is very intrigued by scenarios and how to structure uncertainties for decision making so how could you or how would you adjust or change uh, such political scenarios depending on the audience so depending on, on who's hearing the message you're working with so the policymakers versus the military strategies uh, versus the company leaders, for instance. So how do you uh, change uh, the scenarios according to the audience? Well, I mean, the methods and the tools producing the scenarios are uh, basically the same, uh, no matter who is the client. Uh, of course, the focus and the description and the, uh, the language you are using inside the scenario, of course, it can be adjusted to the specific uh, use of the scenario. So, of course, we're going to focus uh, in different aspects of the future if we are having uh, to discuss a security issue. Um, what is very difficult, I mean, okay, we know the big trends, the mega trends that we can use in our scenarios, but the uncertainties are the more, uh, let's say, critical thing uh, to, to collect uh, when you are building a scenario. And... Uh, to identify the critical uncertainties that are going to change uh, and produce the alternative uh, ideas. Uh, to select those uh, strategic uncertainties, those critical uncertainties, I would say it's, uh, it's a very tricky process. It takes a lot of experience to understand uh, and to some extent you need to is 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 a let's say an interaction between the the, the foresight practitioners and the participants uh, of the of the study of the workshop because uh, it needs some guidance of the process to to help them identify the suitable uncertainty so we can uh, construct the alternative uh, images of the future. 
Okay, so the next uh, kind of question is uh, about, uh, so is this useful to create scenarios during a fragile period like this? So lots of people are kind of concerned. So this is very grave, right? We're talking about war, people dying, right? So we're not talking about inflation or uh, some hypothetical uh, goal, rather, you know, the taking of human lives and, and suffering, right? So uh, do we have probability to understand the main scenario that is plausible? So what are you thinking right now? Are you thinking in terms of higher likelihood, uh, less likelihood something will happen? Um, what Dimitri said is very correct. I wouldn't, I wouldn't start the scenario process at the moment. I believe we are now in the middle of a crisis. Uh, we are very much affected of what is happening. The images that we are uh, watching on uh, on the screen and the news we are reading. So, and still the situation is very dynamic. So, any process to produce scenarios uh, at the moment is going to be. Uh, very much affected about from all this experience that we we are getting at the moment. I would prefer to initiate a process like this after some months that we have a more uh, stable situation and we can, with cold blood, uh, address this problem and uh, think about the future uh, in a more uh, uh, in a less sentimental way. I would say. So the other kinds of questions we have are in regards to uh, costs. So we have two, three, four, ten, twenty different scenarios, but even preparing for each and every one of them would be uh, fairly costly. So I have one from that again. So preparing for alternative futures incur costs, right? So we cannot be prepared for all of the scenarios. We can be prepared for a few of them, right? So what kind of ways do you use or mm -hmm. would you recommend for us to kind of think about or evaluate the likelihood or how or more likely or less likely a specific scenarios are? Actually, how we deal with this problem is in a different way, with a different way. We, we have this process that is called wind tunneling and we actually uh, is not actually uh, prepared for one scenario with the, with the more likelihood uh, scenario or the more probable scenario, but actually uh select strategies and build a long-term strategy that is going to be resilient or successful in most of the alternative scenarios so this is the way that we actually suggest uh, an organization a government uh, a company uh, to work to to produce uh scenarios or a strategy that is going to be resilient in different futures um so this is the way to to proceed so the other type of question we're getting is in regards to um, historical precedents or other examples. And people kind of go back to, for example, Shell Oil and their use of mm. uh, scenario planning. So they have been utilizing uh, scenario planning for decades. Actually, Siemens as well, they do like 50-year forecasts, for example. So what about the work? So Shell's work in this area, uh, has it been useful or is it a useful model for organizations uh why or why not what are your thoughts on uh the scenario planning from shell i'm a big fan of the scenario of cell uh, scenario work i'm uh, i would say i'm a groupie of uh, the cell team uh, that actually built this uh, field and actually uh, the way that they have started building the scenarios and all the uh, all the department the way they have been working is actually uh, are still valid today and I think more or less the, the strategic foresight community is actually in uh, in a great extent is using the same tools 
And uh, I would just add one more thing. We are now experiencing an oil crisis, an energy crisis. It was a similar case that happened uh, three, four decades ago uh, that actually proved the successful or the, the value of building scenarios uh, in the sales case because it was the Arab-Israel uh, war that actually produced this energy crisis at that time. And Shell had these scenarios in place and this strategy in place to actually address uh, the problem. So it was actually a very similar situation that we are experiencing today. Okay, so I wanted to uh, kind of change subjects and ask you a different kind of question. So yesterday was the Sunday of Orthodoxy and Pascha, the highest or the most important celebration in all of Orthodoxy, is fast approaching. So uh, this is the time of the year when all Orthodox people uh, actually come together, right? But now there is a war between two predominantly Orthodox countries. So what do you think this war means uh, for Orthodox fellowship and unity or say lack thereof? Um, I'm not uh, really a, an expert on, uh, on, on churches, but uh, being in Greece, and uh, I'm, of course, a Greek Orthodox, as the vast majority of, of Greeks, so uh, I'm experiencing uh, the situation with uh, Orthodox Church uh, during all my life. So uh, uh, what we are describing is, is, is a very important aspect of what is happening, not only recently, but for many decades. Actually, I would say for, for centuries, there is this war between uh, the ecumenical uh, patriarchate in uh, Constantinople and the uh, Russian Orthodox Church uh, based in, uh, in Moscow and the patriarch uh, based in Moscow. So there is this kind of power uh, war, underground power uh, war that is happening for centuries. Uh, it was a bit uh, dormant during the Soviet Union times, uh, but during the last decades, this war is still very uh, alive. Um, and we see, the, 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 we see this war uh, in different uh, countries, so different uh, churches are uh, actually either... Uh, have relationships with the Patriarch in Istanbul or others with the Patriarch in Moscow. In the case of Ukraine, we have two Orthodox churches in Ukraine, one that is following uh, the Patriarch in, in Moscow and the other, uh, again, the Ecumenical Patriarch. Uh, if you ask me what is going to happen in the future, uh, this political isolation of, of Russia that we, we see this coming, I believe it's going to affect also very seriously the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, already the... Um, Uh, the church in, in Ukraine is moving away from Moscow, and I believe this is going to be the case also for other uh, Orthodox churches that they had good relations with Moscow. But uh, as I said, I'm not really an expert. I'm, I'm just an Orthodox living and experiencing this uh, situation uh, during all my life. Well, along the same lines, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, and specifically, the uh, role of religious leaders, right? So the patriarchs are very influential people. So do you see a role for them? So the Russian patriarch uh, and Bartolomeus, uh, is there a role for them to play in some kind of an effort to bring peace to the region? 
Yeah, that would be very important. Uh, definitely, they can play this role. But the the Russian patriarch so far, the, it was very uh, has a very vivid uh, position, very very strong position uh, supporting the the war. Uh, so I'm not expecting. Uh, uh, something serious, uh, a serious effort from that side. Um, that would be a very important uh, situation if we had an independent church that actually uh, supporting uh, peace talks or help the people in, in Ukraine that are suffering at the moment. Um, I don't know how much power they have, uh, the Patriarch in Istanbul or the, uh, or the Pope in, in Rome. I believe they could support the process and maybe this is the time that uh, the um, Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church can can move the, together and take some uh, initiatives to to help um, uh, ease the pain at some point for the people but also uh, support peace talks. At the moment we don't see this. We don't uh, we we see some uh, uh, some comments from the churches but we don't see any serious uh, initiatives. Yeah, that's kind of disturbing, right? Because the, so uh, we expected someone like you know, like Bishop Desmond Tutu to say you know peace in the world, or the Dalai Lama to say you know peace, people, peace. So I I would have expected the patriarchs to say you know peace, folks, peace, but it hasn't hasn't happened yet. So I have a different kind of question going back to uh, technical aspects, and so. Yanis Angel is asking, you mentioned uh, the importance of involving people in participatory foresight processes uh, as more experience-based approaches. Uh, what is the status of today in the foresight communities regarding cognitive versus more emotionally driven or metaphorical storytelling approaches? Yeah, I think, I think today we understand that we need to combine uh, cognitive uh, process and emotions uh, because both of them are part of the way we imagine the future. These are intrinsically connected, and I believe that uh, different teams are exploring different ways to either uh, to combine uh, these processes because they're equally important. I mean, we, we know this, and uh, sometimes are the, it's not the logic, are the emotions that uh, actually stop us from taking actions uh, in one way or the other. So we need to work... Uh, in both dimensions. Okay, so I want to uh, change subjects uh, one more time. And, and so finally, uh, playing with or rather changing territorial borders by force is a very dangerous kind of game. So if Ukraine ends up dismembered or partitioned or quartered, uh, what are the implications of that for the continent, say um, the Balkans, for example? That was a shock. Uh, that was a shock in Europe. Uh, most of the people that are alive in Europe at the moment, we haven't experienced any war. Of course, there was war in Balkans um, some uh, a decade ago, but that was a different case. It was more like uh, an internal war, I would say. Uh, uh, so it was not like an invasion. Uh, it was, I would say, more like a side effect of uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union and all the communist uh, governments in Eastern Europe. Uh, so we haven't seen so far this kind of, uh, of, an in, of an invasion in Europe for over uh, 70 years. It was a big shock. 
It was something that my generation was never ex 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 expecting to happen. And this is something that is definitely going to change the way we are considering the future. Uh, so far, um, seems like a catalyst for the democratic uh, communities in Europe. Uh, people are... Uh, uh, I, I see people that are more aware of we need to take action together, we need to be more active, we need to protect uh, our values and uh, our democracy. So uh, hearing my optimistic side, I would say that uh, not now, because now we are experiencing the uh, very negative impacts of this invasion, but I would say that uh, in uh, midterm future we'll see a very positive impact uh, in, in Europe, uh, on the, how we use our energy sources, how we uh, we invest more on uh, renewable energies, how we cut uh, energy um, uh, spending and this kind of thing. So I guess or I hope that in medium term we're going to have a very positive impact on uh, on the West. Yeah, so far it's uh, kind of a big challenge and uh, we see those images, uh, you know, in our TV screen, so it's, it's kind of shocking, but hopefully the horror will be so evident in, in people's uh, view that we say, well, this is not a very good way to negotiate the future. Perhaps we um, should find or go back to a different way. Again, since uh, the end of World War II, we haven't seen you know people trying to change borders by force, right? Yeah. Well, uh, well, it seems we could talk for a lot longer and I could ask you a lot more questions and certainly they have many more questions. So we'll, we'll save them for, for another day. Uh, Dr. Christophilopoulos, thank you so very much for being here with me and the audience today. It's uh, really a great opportunity to highlight the work that WFSF members such as yourself uh, do and what and how people at large can benefit uh, from all of this knowledge sharing. So thank you so very much. Thank you, Rome. It was a pleasure, really. Thank you. So so hang around. We'll, we'll go back and talk at the end for the final wrap up. So thank you so much. So I will uh, transition a little bit and I want to talk uh, about my next guest. So Kasper uh, Nazazewski, uh, he's a partner at 4CF, where he engages UNESCO, all the top 100 companies in Poland, and manages a variety of foresight projects in Europe and in Africa. Uh, he coordinated research for the Polish Society of Future Studies. He's a member. And he taught at uh, uh, Warsaw University. So uh, let's... Welcome him to the show. Hi, Casper. How are you doing today? Hello, Ron. Thanks. Um, not bad. Hope, hope, hope you're also well. Well, uh, first of all, uh, Poland is playing a key role in assisting literally millions of displaced Ukrainians. Uh, Poland has opened its borders and its heart to refugees uh, who are fleeing the war zone. So not sure where to begin and thanking you, the Polish people, uh, for all this wonderful and marvelous work you're doing in welcoming so many folks, I believe uh, uh, two million now and, and counting in such a delicate time. So uh, thank you so much. Well, uh, Rom, uh, I, I don't feel I, I'm representing as much as to thank on behalf of all the people who are going way out of, of, of uh, normal to uh, 
help and to bring the kind of assistance they are capable of. And there's, there are so many ways in which help is being delivered from people who man ambulances and trucks evacuating uh, hospitals in, in Ukraine and bringing uh, sick people over to uh, and injured over to Poland on trains and on ambulances, but also people who like there's a guy at the central railway station in Warsaw who is dressed up as a T-Rex, as a dinosaur, and he hands out uh, candies and uh, coloring books to children who are squatting there waiting for, you know, uh, the Ukrainian children moving moving in there, getting off the trains from, from Ukraine, waiting to be, to be assigned to um, some uh, shelters and uh, places where they can stay. So uh, just as there are close or, 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 or already two million people, uh, seeking refuge, seeking asylum, or fleeing the war. There are perhaps more than too many, two million people. To, there are perhaps more than two million ways of 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 helping, and uh, anyone can can do it. So I also, before we get into the thick of the things on the uh, scenarios for Ukraine, I also want to encourage everyone who's listening to try and uh, through their local charities or through their community work that they are capable of to try and and assist in this process because it is. For this part of Europe unprecedented. Well, we need to take into account that with this number of refugees, this is absolutely comparable scale to, to Syrian um, refugees in Turkey or to Venezuelan refugees in Colombia. So we're talking absolute top of uh, the strain and the crisis, humanitarian crisis that it entails. Yeah, that's right. You know, all of us, we can do a little bit or do, do our part to help because it's literally, you know, so there's two million in Poland right now, but then um, thousands or hundreds and thousands in Slovakia, in Hungary, in Romania, yeah, Moldova, in Moldova. Romania, yes. Actually, even in Belarus and Russia, there are uh, thousands of people who are displaced. So we're talking about a displacement of people in the continent that we have not seen since uh, the end of World War II or since uh, people were welcoming the Syrian refugees. So millions of people, not, not a few, but rather millions. Uh, so, uh, before we get started, if I miss anything important, could you please say a few words about yourself and the beautiful work you do at 4CF? Thank you very much, Rom. Uh, yes, indeed, I, it's, uh, my presence here today also is uh, connected to the fact that my team has uh, worked on the Ukraine crisis and Ukraine war scenarios for uh, various clients, uh, ranging from uh, defense think tanks and security think tanks to all the way to to uh, MOD Ministry of Defense in Poland and so I've also worked with other clients in national security establishment uh, in other parts of the world too so so since 2014 since before the invasion and annexation of Crimea we've been uh, looking through scenario processes through simulations through war games and through different workshop uh, workshops and reports at how this situation could uh, spell out, but also um, at the consequences, political and strategic consequences for the EU, for the region, and for 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 the uh, also on a bigger scale uh, everywhere in the everywhere in the world, because uh, the global balance of powers is affected when um, Russia and Federation takes such a move, and 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 this is why it has global reverberations, not only for humanitarian um, uh, concerns. For CF is is a team of uh, foresight specialists, uh, 
went we've been in the business for for 15 years already I'm, I'm here for 10 years so there were like you said many clients and many different projects but it's always a hard a difficult moment also emotionally when you see um the processes the the projects that you did the foresights that you developed for uh, such tragic events like the war that's happening in ukraine following um the escalation of 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 russian aggression bearing in mind that russia is present militarily in on the ukrainian territory since 2014 in uh, crimea in uh, donbass and in uh, lugansk uh, so so to see it in real life is uh, a testing moment also for uh, foresight or future studies experts well, it's one thing to imagine it. It's the other thing to uh, see it uh, unfold in front of our own eyes, especially uh, the more uh, drastic or more impactful scenarios such as a war or escalation of, of violence. Now, I wanted to, uh, to remain uh, in the topic. So you worked on a variety of scenarios for Ukraine, so not just one, two or three, but actually several. So let's talk about the near future. Uh, what outcomes uh, can be anticipated for the war in Ukraine? I, I need to second what Nanda said uh, a couple of minutes ago uh, concerning the difficulty of uh, doing foresight when we are in the thick of the things where there's so much happening. There's fog of war that prevents us from seeing the developments on a tactical level in Ukraine, from understanding in, in, in specific places who's winning and who's losing. And both sides apply a strategic communication and, and um, uh, measures to, to uh, transfer a certain narrative of, of the events. So, so it definitely doesn't help in imagining the future for Ukraine. But still, based on the work that, that we did and also on some of the uh, projects that uh, Nondas Christofilopoulos referred to, we can start to try and, you know, in very broad strokes, um, sketch out what could be the outcomes. Nondas, uh, and, and we, can, we can talk about them in, let's say, three portfolios, in three different, in three different kinds of flavors. Uh, calling them scenarios wouldn't be wouldn't be too accurate at this point, but but we, we might just as well say there are three sets of of scenarios for Ukraine. Um, the 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 one that seems to be with every passing day of violence, with the mounting attrition, with mounting casualties, also civilian, but also with a sort of a stalemate that we are witnessing in Ukraine, especially in terms of. Uh, this becoming a very archaic war, a very, um, well, unmodern sort of war, uh, not a maneuver war, but a position war, well, not maneuver warfare, but position warfare. We are slowly but surely transitioning into what can be called a marathon, uh, a scenario for the future in Ukraine where uh, I would even go beyond what Nanda said, not in a matter of weeks, will this uh, conflict be resolved but it could take months and even longer uh, of uh, ambiguous situation in which uh, there is there, there there may be uh, places where there is ceasefire but there is no truce anywhere and there is no peace inside um, which means that we could witness in uh, this marathon scenario um, a formation of new separatist uh, quasi-republics 
like we've already seen in Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, we could, the same, same thing could happen in uh, other major cities in eastern Ukraine. And this, of course, is um, a part of uh, fait accompli of, of de facto uh, policy, uh, strategic policy of Russian Federation there to create even if ambiguous, even if contested, but create some political facts that will uh, hinder the possibility to restore um, peace or uh, just restore stability uh, as of, uh, you know, as it was in 2021 or even better as it was pre-Crimea, so in 2013, in terms of territorial integrity of Ukraine. This scenario of marathon, this scenario of long run is... Uh, very strenuous also for the West because the longer a crisis lasts, the 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 more the will to fight, the morale in on business side and the morale on in terms of uh, we've seen so many announcements of American and European businesses pulling out of Russia, renouncing their well, uh, cutting off their business ties with the Russian Federation. But this uh, the will to do this if this conflict is uh, extended in time, will falter. And we will see many centrifugal forces within important Western uh, countries that will contest uh, the, the commitment that was initially made, the full and unambiguous commitment to um, democracy and sovereignty in, in, in Ukraine. So this is a scenario that where, where there are many ambiguities and there are many moving parts, but this is one that is with every day of, of fighting gains in importance. It's also the most, uh, well, the, 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 the murkiest, the most uh, opaque, where, in which uh, really uh, things could go in different, in different ways, but no way is, is good. Could it culminate in a sort of a new Cold War setup where we would have to... Uh, states on two banks of Dnipro River in Ukraine. I don't. Uh, I don't think this uh, can be completely ruled out as a possibility. As uh, you know, the whole world is watching, and the whole world wants this to end. Only different actors want the war in Ukraine to end to different uh, in different results. So, so this is this is the scenario that I think uh, is the most. In, intricate, but also the most intriguing and the one to which we need to pay the most attention, also the, the hardest to work with for uh, from a foresight perspective. There are other two, and I can go uh, right into them unless you want to ask some follow-up question on the marathon, the long-run scenario. Yes, uh, in terms of the marathon, so bef before you depart, I wanted to ask you um, a historical question, specifically in regards to uh, Polish history and the Polish experience. So during World War II, the Germans wanted a buffer between them and the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union wanted a buffer between them and Germany. So both invaded Poland, the Germans from the West and the Russians from the East, or the Soviets from the East, and they partitioned Poland. So one, and again, part of the drama we experience is we don't know what is the end game or what is it that, that the Russians want at the end of the day. So are we back to that kind of the philosophy in terms of a geopolitical strategies? The Russians want a buffer zone between them and the NATO forces? Is that what's going on? Or one potential explanation? Yeah, well, uh, I, I would not completely disregard uh, ways of explaining and uh, making sense of, of war in Ukraine 
from a Russian perspective. It's very important to understand, and, and uh, this is this is why I also think it's uh, Nondas should be should be thanked for uh, trying to dig into the Russian perspective on futures and geopolitical futures. Uh, what we uh, the, the historical historical comparison is not so uh, easy to apply because there is no Western invader here that could that could be interested in territorial gain uh, uh, from from Ukraine and there is well NATO or Germany or Poland or no one else wants to profit from this from this from this war like the Soviet Union did in uh, following a secret treaty with uh, the Nazi Germany in 1949 which effectively partitioned Poland so so at the like just like you said at the beginning of World War II after the German invasion of Poland Soviet Union invaded from the east and they and they divided the country between themselves not creating a buffer zone quite to the contrary uh, standing face face to face and in 1941 this this of course uh, changed when when Hitler invaded um Soviet Union but but so so this analogy cannot be directly used and like many and historical analogies it can be misleading in uh, when you're when you're thinking about what the future holds but uh, if we're inquiring about the Russian perspective on this we can see across ideological writings philosophical or historiosophical writings of Russian elite thinkers in the last 20 or 30 years uh, what concept they are trying to um, uh, to explain and how they want to uh, what what substance they want to put uh, uh, to support their imperialist uh, policy in uh, in uh, that that leads to you know using war as a means of policy policy in uh, in in Ukraine here and now so the, the here of course there is there is uh, there are claims of protecting security from NATO as uh, you know the the, the 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 adversary there are claims of but there are also deeper running uh, cultural um, threads uh, such as the Kievan Rus being the cradle of um, the the, the uh, state dome and statehood in uh, in this part of Europe uh, and also an independent country and uh, uh, an important religious and cultural hub at the times where Moscow was still ruled by the Mongols. Um, so uh, there is, of course, this uh, idea that uh, only um, a unification or federalization of all the former Soviet Union uh, territories um, restores the historical balance and restores the right um, uh, well sets the right tone for 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 the future because uh, the situation here and now is just a, um, a historical error. This is this is the kind of narrative that that Russia is putting forward. But we should always, and I'm saying this in personal capacity, and I don't want to, this to be ascribed to a World Future Studies Federation or or any, any anyone else. But we should we need to understand that the Russian political system is based on a nexus of organized crime um, and uh, ex KGB and um, oligarchic, uh, you know, corrupted uh, business models. Uh, so the ideological uh, grounds are there to justify the means and goals that have much more basic and much more simple 
um, motivation, uh, just like staying in power, protecting those who profit from the present system and uh, um, somehow nurturing uh, uh, and deeply undemocratic and, and uh, you know, a very problematic political uh, concept for, uh, for, 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 for statehood and for a society, one that, is, uh, that we see, um, you know, play out in Russia over the last at least 20 years uh, after, the, after the, the, the collapse of, of the idea for a more democratic and more liberal Russia in the, in the 90s post uh, and also following the collapse of uh, USSR. So uh, it's important to, to, to learn about this, but also uh, it's important to, to know to which set of values we subscribe. Uh, values are an important part of uh, futures process, and we often question and challenge the assumptions about the future that we make based on values that we subscribe to, or at least that we declare that we pledge allegiance to. And uh, I, as much as I am, you know, this is part and parcel of uh, foresight business to uh, question and challenge the assumptions, also the assumptions stemming, stemming from values and leaving no stone unturned in the quest for, you know, inventing new futures, ones that uh, enable the, you know, that, that, that help us imagine in a, a more rich and more, more um, a future that, that, that is just, you know, somehow emancipates us from the, from the past limitations. Uh, I, would, I wouldn't say that uh, we should only question for questioning sake and there is always a limit uh, at which we need to stop because if we revert the values that we that we uh, that we that we subscribe to uh, of, of liberty of democracy of uh, self-determination and so on then uh, this is not where it's where it should should go and I see this kind of uncertainty and ambiguity about the situation from people who who who, who try to understand both sides and sometimes end up um, not understanding any of any of uh, either either of them so you mentioned uh, the restoration of the soviet union as a potential way for the future that's kind of dangerous and kind of scary at the same time but I wanted to ask you, so one of the important things we do, and I think in all futures exercises, is to include all voices. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about, uh, to the extent possible, that we can discuss the Russian perspective. So let's go back 20 years. We had President Yanukovych, who was really a person on the wall, at times appeasing the Russians, at times dealing with, with Western Europe. But he was overthrown. Actually, former President Yanukovych is in exile in Russia proper. So to what extent do you, do you believe? So not, not so much as you know, ex restoring the Soviet Union, but uh, the view or perspective of uh, bringing back a friend that was overthrown by the expansionist West. So, quote, restoring uh, our good friends in Ukraine to their historical truth and their quote, legitimately elected president that was overthrown and it's now sitting in Moscow. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to sound too smart on this, but uh, it's fairly easy to say that if uh, you need to, uh, well, <laughs> invade the country to liberate it, well, we've seen many examples both in the East and, and, and in the West of... Uh, excuses being made to 
justify more basic and more more um, well easy to understand motivations. Uh, well, the and I want to I want to imagine uh, and, and and go deeper into the imagination of future of Russia that, that we see because it's not only the longing for the USSR. Uh, there are other um, motives here as well, other tropes. There is within the, the Russian uh, Federation political elite, there's also longing for pre-revolutionary Russia, so to the Tsarist Russia. And it's not just uh, declaratory. There's, we, we've seen it and it's been described by journalists how um, uh, the Russian elites tried to retie Uh, connections with the so-called white Russian successors, white, white Russian descendants, the families of, of aristocratic or wealthy families who fled Russia in 1917 in the revolution or in the years subsequent, and try to create something that will not just mimic USSR with all it, the, pro the, 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 the problems, uh, uh, like economic problems and economic predicaments of a communist or aspiring communist uh, Uh, economy, but also create a, a, a sort of a new value, a sort of a new quality, an emergent future for Russia that would take the best from the USSR in terms of the extent of territorial, well, the extent of the em empire and the um, military might uh, as, a, as a nuclear um, uh, superpower, but also, you know, this tradition that comes with, with philosophical and uh, political Uh, foundations uh, that go deeper, that go hundreds of years back uh, uh, with the Romanov family. So, uh, so the dynasty that ruled Russia ever since um, in 17th century, uh, the so-called period of troubles in Russia concluded. The period of troubles that 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 meant that the statehood was at risk because because the um, previous dynasty uh, died out and there was there were civil wars but also interventions from neighboring countries so so when we're thinking about the future and this is i think an important memento from a futurist perspective in this in this specific conversation that uh, we we know this but we should be telling this to people we cannot seek direct analogies and try in a sort of macro historical perspective see the future as repetition of the past, you know, just look for the cycles and say every 80 years there's a major war in Europe. So this is part of some kind of a bigger historiosophical or macro-historical uh, plan. And and this is part of some, some kind of, you know, uh, sinusoid between uh, positive and negative or whatever whatever pol polarities you you ascribe to this we, we we should be always think we should always be considering that there may be an emergent risk coming from this so because if we just say that this is russia restoring its uh, historical security buffers that it means you know what the assumption behind this we know the limits of the historic buffers geographically be it vistula river or other or further you know in the uh, old uh, german democratic republic did perhaps the 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 west east germany uh, border but you know it limits our thinking in uh, taking imperialism for what it is that it's always uh, insatiable that it's always hungry for more because its imperialism is imbalanced as uh, and 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 aggressive as uh, you know by definition 
So, so I'm not saying that we shouldn't make these analogies, but uh, completely. But we should always consider that you know this time around, it may not just be the repetition of what we know from history books. It may be something much more sinister, something profoundly more you know a, a much bigger threat to the global balance of power and to the European uh, and to the values to which uh, European. Uh, societies in the EU subscribe that are that are embodied in the, the Charter of Fundamental Rights, European Charter of Fundamental Rights, and, and others. And if we like the uh, progressive uh, um, uh, turns and progressive strengths in policy, we should completely well. We we, we should we should clearly say that the Russian <laughs> uh, Federation policies, both internal and external, are overtly hostile to to whatever we consider good and just in diversity in inclusiveness in democracy in fairness and so on uh i'm 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 afraid i'm painting a bit of a dark picture of russian federation and i don't just just don't want to play on the uh, present emotion but this can be um, analyzed uh, also you know in cold blood and and and, and like from a cool perspective and the results would not be much different. I, I kind of like the comparison you made. So uh, from their perspective, so let's go back not to the Soviet Union, but to Imperial Russia. So uh, Katarina the Great, uh, uh, Peter the Great. So perhaps uh, they have a romantic view of the future, going back to the past with a greater Russia and they don't they themselves don't see themselves as the the robber barons or the oligarchs but they're actually the new boyars who are helping rebuild the great russia so perhaps in their view they are doing quote what is right yeah of course of course so, well it could it can be it can be said so and we know we have eyewitness accounts and we have documentation proving that uh, putin's circle uh, for many years already, first in St. Petersburg and now in the same, the famous Putin's palace on the Black Sea, have made historical reenactments of court life in uh, at the court of the Tsars. You know, dressing up in uh, fancy gowns and 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 uh, uh, historical costume and and trying to relive the feeling of being on on top, also from a more perennial perspective, not just the span lifespan of a of an individual, but something bigger, something something greater. Um, the conversation we're having about this should should, however, uh, we I, I want to rebalance this a little bit because you know I'm coming from a, from from Poland, a country that has been for uh, for centuries, uh, you know, c c contested and and that's that's confronted uh, uh, the the different emanations of. Uh, Moscovy truths and uh, different uh, political uh, uh, formations that existed in the in the east, and also I want to refer to the fate of Ukrainian or Belarusian or uh, the nations of the Baltic states, the societies of the of the Baltic states. It's interesting to talk about this in terms of the ideas of the West and the ideas of the of the East, the futures imagined for the future of Russia. Or the futures imagined for by the West, but we should perhaps try, and this is not easy, 
to keep the perspective of those who've been excluded from the conversation about what it means or, or, or if they were even part of the conversation about the future in 19th century or in 20th century, they had a sort of um, a lesser place at the table because or they did not have the statehood at, at, at a given moment. Or just, uh, you know, the conversation was going over our heads, like like in Yalta in 1943. Uh, so um, I, I, I take great pride in the possibility to publish, well, we've published at the Polish Society for Future Studies two days ago, uh, a piece, a reflection piece on uh, the situation in the Ukraine war by a Rush uh, by a Ukrainian um, foresighter from uh, Technical University of Lviv, Petro Sukhorolsky, who is also a member of World Future Studies Federation, by the way, who's presenting his perspective. And and uh, when you shift the lens, as we always, as we often do in, in in future studies, when you shift the lens from considering the futures that Russia wants or the futures that the West wants, and you try to to capture the reality and the values that this so-called small nations of Central and Eastern Europe, you know, being already, this, isn't it a bit derogatory in, in, in term, um, that, that they also have a right to some kind of future and they also have a right to make sense of complexity of uh, political, economic and social uh, dilemmas in their own way, then you realize, well, it's, it's, uh, we shouldn't be defined and our nobody's future should be defined by political visions of any empire. And I think this is something that resonates quite well with many people who are listening to us in the United States, just as much as, it's, uh, as it is resonating with people all around the world who feel that they are not, you know, for the moment or never been on the privileged group, on the group that dictates the theory, the historical or, or future theory that tells us, you know, what is normal Tells us what is the the you know what is homeostatic in terms of balance of powers, when uh, the energies and the potentials are well balanced. Well, ask those who are who are at that you know at the uh, at the at the impact zone of this, and then they will tell you that you know we don't want this to be decided for um, for, for us them, by for them or for yeah especially for them because we can't quite compare situation in Poland with Ukraine not at all at the moment. Uh, for them, decided by somebody else based on, you know, regardless if you want to quote Hannah Arendt or I don't know, uh, um, Adorno or uh, Immanuel Kant, you can, you can, you know, use many great quotes, but, but, you know, you sh we shouldn't let, uh, we shouldn't lose from sight, uh, from philosophical theories and historiosophical theories, you know, the fate and the livelihood of actual people who live in the region and who, who experience the, the war locally and what future they have in, um, in front of them. In the marathon scenario that we've uh, just discussed, well, the future is no foreign direct investment, uh, problems in subsistence because of, of just, you know, cut uh, supply lines, maybe injury, maybe definitely mourning, likely death. So, 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 you know, underneath the sheen of, uh, you know, the, 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 the sheen of, of, of uh, diamonds in, in Fabergé eggs and this conversation about, you know, the balance of powers and so on, there are fates of individual people who live in what has been uh, called by a famous Yale historian, Timothy Snyder, the bloodlands. 
this 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 part of Europe that in 20th century experienced loss of life of tens of millions of people who've been slaughtered, murdered here. And when we see um, you know war atrocities happening here and now, it also influences. This should also be taken into account um, as as you know as local and visceral uh, perception of of what is happening, but also. Uh, a different set of lenses that we use to look at the futures. Now, I wanted to uh, remain uh, at the historical uh, questions for a lot, a minute longer. So, one of the arguments that the uh, Russians use is, well, um, it's a plane all the way from Poland uh, in, in into Moscow, right? So, Bo Napoleon came through the plane. Hitler came through the plane. So, there's this. Maybe it's just an argument, historical fear that maybe a horde of Westerners will go through the plane and, and get to Moscow. But nowadays we have nuclear weapons. So to what extent uh, this is a real fear in their part or is it just a plot? I mean, if the West were to, to invade, you know, let's say the, the, the Polish decides to march into Moscow, right, they would use a nuclear weapon. Uh, so, uh, to what extent is just um, hula baloo, or they're just using it as a historical revisionism to justify, or do you think it's real? They they really truly fear that you know, in some point in time, the West will march in or barge in. Yes, this is always the temptation to uh, look at futures through the perspective of a geography book and just, but but then it can be very easily reverted. If you consider the, and this is something that geostrategists or, or geopolitical experts like to like to do, if you look at the sheer mass of the Russian uh, interior, so the Eurasian span of this country, and if you look at the scale of the small peninsula that is uh, Europe, you know, with Iberian... Uh, and uh, peninsula of Italy with some small islands, you know, Britain, uh, Ireland, Scandinavian peninsula. This is really, it's, it's dwarfed by the monstrous size and scale of, 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 of Asia, even though, of course, many maps lie to the, to the actual proportions, because if you look at the globe, you will see that Africa is much bigger than, than <laughs> as a continent than, than uh, and considerably considerably bigger in size than, than we were used to perceive it, uh, to perceive it, to be perceiving it. So so this can be reverted. You could also say in a similar manner that from Moscow uh, across you know the plains in Smolensk, uh, Warsaw, further to the west across Greater Poland through Poznan, Berlin, and, you know, there are hearts, uh, mountains somewhere along the way, but you could go all the way to Pyrenees without crossing any major uh, mountain chains. So maybe people who are now enjoying the drinks in Biarritz on the Basque coast of France could be just as, uh, you know, terrorized or anxious about their future as uh, hypothetical uh, Russians are uh, Russian. Russian leader leaders uh, could be in in their bunkers in Moscow or or in the Urals. So so if you look at this from different perspective, it's all the same. But for some reason, and the reason is political, and the reason is in the the sort of uh, deal and and the ideals that the societies embrace, people. Uh, well, I don't see much preaching in terms of Russian threat 
at the at the Basque River of of France or in or on Côte d'Azur, and I see much of this rhetoric being used by the other side. So so maybe to restore a bit of balance, you know, it works both ways. You know, a plane can be traversed to get can be traversed by a backpacker. Uh, going around to see the world and meet new people, but it can be very, very quickly uh, run over with tanks. And what you're saying as well about the nuclear powers is uh, it, it, it's a way to balance out the situation, of course, that that there is no real threat. Well, I don't see any real threat of any NATO country uh, having any territorial claims against Russian Federation and moving, you know, uh, in, in, into Russia. So, so nothing to be afraid, you know, that well, uh, well, there are other problems. They, they know they took Karelia from Finland in a war yeah. and mm -hmm. they took Königsberg from Germany in a war. So yeah. they, maybe they fear that uh, in the end of the day or sometime in the future, they say, wait a second, this used to be ours now, give it back. Lots of uh, people are concerned with uh, the issue of uh, an expanding war or so because we don't know what the end game really is. So uh, one kind of question is, uh, so looking at the EU strategic compass and the end 2030, so what is the future scenario for Ukraine in neighboring countries? So, so the possibility of, so lots of people are asking about the spillover effect. But so what's the, what will be the position of Russia in your perspective? and also of Poland. So implications of neighboring, so Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, so Bessarabia, Poland. Uh, thanks for thanks for this question. Um, of course, because this is very relevant and, and it's important that it's being asked because uh, the, the present war makes us redraw and reconsider some of the concepts and what we considered in terms of scenarios or futures for Europe what we considered plausible or we co what we considered realistic. <coughs> Under the marathon scenario, you know, uh, the one that we've been discussing so far, it's, um, well, you could say that it doesn't really tip the scales in any direction because it, it's still uh, we we're trying to uh, rebalance or, or have peace in a present geopolitical uh, setup. But if this war is won by either of the parties, either of the sides, in the next month or two, which means expulsion of Russian Federation forces from Ukraine by the Ukraine armed forces, or to the other end, Ukrainians being overrun by Russians, uh, the, the, the present government being overthrown, some kind of puppet, regime being um, installed and you know uh, the the usual elements of of uh, policy for occupied uh, country uh, perhaps further the fragmentation with new people's republics in the in the eastern mm, well these scenarios present mm, well give opportunities and threats uh, for european and russian foreign policy and for the for the balance of powers so for Definitely, there's there's no doubt about it that uh, once the hostilities uh, end, we it's it's not irrelevant which side wins, even though Ukraine is outside of the EU, because the reconstruction of the country 
uh, will be only possible on you know in 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 terms that are acceptable to the West uh, if the Russians pull out, and this presents uh, an incredible, a lovely, a lovely set of opportunities for further development and for for rebuilding and strengthening of the European project. On the other hand, if the Russians prevail in Ukraine now, there will also be a reconstruction, but it will be done by uh, maybe Chinese companies, maybe Russian, Sino-Russian companies, maybe some other partners of Russia who have unfaltering support for their cause and who have a strong popular, uh, even strong popular support for, for, for Russian imperialism. And I, I could mention as an example, not a perfect one, as we all know, it's, it's much more uh, complex in, in the specifics, but countries like India. So, so the reconstruction of Ukraine after the war is something is a is a is a is a topic which can be, um, yeah, actually uh, considered uh, in uh, when we are when we are looking at the end game and when we're looking at realignment or corrections in EU policy. The me the meaning of uh, Eastern partnership and the meaning of uh, the neighborhood policy uh, as it evolved over will be reshaped one more time. And we can clearly see that it could be reshaped or to a more beneficial, you know, a stronger, ever stronger union, or it can be used to contest the European project and install uh, other agents and other actors in the region. Okay, we have uh, different kinds of comments. Uh, so one, uh, a man with big heart, you know, Professor Klaus Soberg Soylen, I, I know him. So he says we have a refugee family living in our home now. And that fills me with much joy during this difficult period, sitting at the table with Misha, who is two years old, whose house in Kharkiv was bombed. Well, now we know uh, the West of Ukraine is being bombed as well, right? So a couple of questions. So uh, one is more general. So is there a danger when experts talk rationally about finding a, quote, solution to the Ukraine crisis? Does this not risk giving legitimacy to the attacker? Well, and the, the 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 further part of this question is is just equally interesting because by 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 saying okay, we need to give Russia a chance to get out of this and for Putin to save his face in this in this uh, situation, we're saying we, we're sort of accepting the fait accompli, uh, the de facto uh, policy of, of of Russia that has been described as policy of escalating to de-escalate so uh, making two steps forward so that we can make one step back but still be the on the winning side still have more gain than we've than, than we've lost or that we decide to to give up of the spoils that we've that we've gathered so um it's different when we're looking for a rational solution from a perspective of uh, what is called in germany russland versteher so people who claim to understand Russia and 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 the legitimacy of its of its uh, policy, and it's different when we're trying to look at this in a rational way by imagining the possible consequences and and uh, uh, first degree, second degree, third degree consequences of the of the situation here and now. The former is doesn't help <laughs> much, uh, although it has, uh, you know, it's it, it's also there's also place at the table for people who who want to be advocate who want to advocate for 
for Russia's interest here. Uh, we, we we can agree to disagree, but or we can go more violent about this. But but uh, I'm not saying we should uh, gag anyone. Uh, and the latter uh, situation in which we are still trying, even though the bombs are falling, even towns are being shelled, um, you know, maternity wards being evacuated under artillery fire in Mariupol two days ago, that we should still try and use the rational and intellectual categories we have at our disposal at, you know, as futures literacy says, you know, use this 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 different ways of using the future, different ways of imagining the future, more rational, more emotional, more spiritual, more materialistic, more political or more anarchistic. And and they, are, they all have a place in thinking about the futures of, of Ukraine also but we also shouldn't discard completely the, the role that you know tactical operational uh, ways of imagining the future uh, have and and you know uh, just the fact that the west has been parts of the west have been preparing for this war for the last uh, seven years already and and you know uh, looking at this and i've also been part of this with our work on on on, on war scenarios in in in, uh, in ukraine uh, imagining what could happen not to provoke it not to uh you know make it happen not to throw matches at, at gasoline tanks no no absolutely no matches allowed but to be able to embrace the situation and not be overwhelmed by it but be able to you know dive into this chaos and uh, and save what can be saved now you mentioned uh uh Right. So uh, talking about your neighbors uh, to the West now. Uh, so since Willy Brandt and, you know, since the 1960s, Germany invested in this Horst politic, right? Mm -hmm. Rapprochement with the then Soviet Union. And it really played a key role. So Chancellor Helmut Kohl was able to negotiate uh, the reunification of Germany, um, extracted out of uh, the Soviet Union. Now, uh, the new Chancellor, Chancellor Schultz, actually did a, a 360 degree turnaround, right? So instead of a rapprochement with uh, uh, Russia, they're saying, well, we need to take a different stand. So, to what extent do you believe this is going to be the policy going forward? So, no longer rapprochement, but rather more escalation. Mm. Uh, as as many of uh, people who who listen to our conversation know, the project for energy transition in Europe was to a bigger extent based on a natural gas as a fuel, and this was a, an apex, a culmination of the process that you've been you, that you've talked about. The assumption that if we do good business with Russians, we may actually end up not being not fighting each other because it's it's not good business. Uh, you know, it's it would be cool to hear um, a German experts uh, have a say on this, because as much as I don't want someone else to be talking over my head, I don't want to be creating German futures for 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 the German experts and, and give them all due respect in this. Uh, if I was to forecast something, yes, I believe that uh, the pivotal moment was in the second or third day of the war when when Germany actually reverted course and started uh, you know contributing aid to ukraine believe with with what i have what i imagine as the assumption or the stimulus for this imagining 
that there can be that it's possible to still do, still do, do still do business with Russia, but with someone else on the Kremlin. That this is possible. That this is a possible endgame of this war, and this would not be a panacea to anything. But this is a future that we, you know, have the right to consider. That that you know, Russia, yes, maybe you know, and a different political setup that the Russian society will be able to decide upon uh, in a more democratic in a more democratic uh, manner. Wonderful. So let me uh, bring uh, Dr. Krzysztof Filipoulos uh, back on and, and kind of uh, going into our our final thoughts or your final thoughts. So one way is you described a marathon, a, a, a long and protracted conflict in, in Ukraine. So uh, I want to ask uh, both of you this this question. So what kind of uh, potential outcomes you see for the near future, so five to ten years, uh, so protracted conflict, marathon is one of them. Uh, can you name a couple more that uh, you would see, both of you? So maybe starting with uh, Dr. Christophilopoulos, do you see other potential outcomes? Well, I mean, I guess in, in this kind of things, you can uh, think about uh, many different variations. Some of them are, uh, I mean, I, I can think uh, very quickly, maybe 10 of them. I think the important thing here is what Casper uh, said uh, just a few seconds ago. It's, it's very important to reconsider our assumptions and how we consider uh, things on the future, because that was the basic mistake uh, we did. Uh, in Europe uh, during the last decade, we 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 focused on a very wrong assumption of how is going to be our relationship with Russia, and we took for granted some uh, uh, how Russia and uh, Putin will react uh, and behave, let's say, in the future. Uh, and that was completely wrong. So um, I think the important thing is to to think about all these alternatives and uh, reconsider our assumptions because. Thinking that Russia will react the way we expect, or the Russian society will react the way we expect, is uh, basically basically wrong. It's 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 a false assumption. Yes, uh, I I absolutely concur with with Nondas that uh, this is the never-ending vocation of futurists to be helping in you know being the the midwives or mid husband of the of the birth of the new of new assumptions and questioning of the old assumptions there are some um you know short to midterm effects that we will likely witness um of course inflation has been rampant in uh, europe for the last uh, year already so we shouldn't expect this to change uh, in the short term we should If, if inflation is above 10 percent well to to put this into perspective that means that okay. people are getting well uh 10 months pay for one 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 ten and a half months pay for one year of worth of their of their work uh another thing is uh, the energy conundrum and i've already touched upon this it merits a separate discussion uh, i also agree here with nondas that this is a huge opportunity for speeding up the process of decarbonization and uh, moving toward a greener and more digital economy. Because in a world where, you know, uh, you have your own solar cells, I'm oversimplifying it, it, you know, in a vulgar way, but in a world where everybody has their own solar cells, 
the oligopolies of uh, energy companies and the monopoly uh, and the monopolies of uh, fuel and uh, you know coal gas or or uh, uranium or or uh, f uh, petroleum providers cannot dictate political uh, political solutions in a way that 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 we've seen in the last decades um, and the third thing is of course and this is very sad Although I've worked with with the arms industry, you know, with with European and, and other companies, and I've seen how you know there's a huge amount of innovation and good work being done in terms of new defense systems and so on. We need to understand that if 100 billion euros is being moved in Germany toward defense, and if important adjustments and appropriations would be made in budgets of every country in the world following this. It means that money will not land land somewhere else, because there is no you know magic money that that just you know comes from from the thin air, it can be printed, but it also has a cost. So, important social goals, important political goals, important things things that are close to our hearts may be defunded, or just not receive uh, sufficient attention because money will be moved over. To defense budgets, to you know, buying guns and ships and planes and 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 investing in these technologies. So these are the consequences we need to face. One more thing, uh, the last one for the region, Central and Eastern Europe. One of the biggest uh, threats here is, of course, perception of risk. So if perception of risk changes, and but it also affects the countries that are south from Romania, Bulgaria, and Greece to some extent. If we see an increase in political risk because of the external uh, risk of, of escalation from the Russian Federation, foreign direct investments are likely to, to, go, to go down. And uh, all kinds of measures uh, be, that are being used to secure these investments that are, that are by their own nature inefficient uh, because they, they decrease efficiency in favor of, of you know, security um considerations this is also not good business to the societies of greece bulgaria poland the balkans turkey and other other countries that are by an incident of history a little too close to a little closer to to uh russia than or to the old east uh, than the those that have uh, the capital to invest well, right, it seems that we covered quite a lot of ground today. Uh, thank you so much again you for much, your, your time today. Uh, Dr. Aktisha Filopoulos, thank you so much for uh, your time today and sharing your thoughts again, folks, uh, to distinguished members of WFSF, sharing their views and their work. And in some current situation, and we tend to think about this is we're talking about the future. The, the future is already happening. It's happening today. Uh, borders are being changed by thoughts. Uh, as Casper uh, mentioned, you know, now money will be diverted away from social projects and certainly from, from climate change. And, and specifically for Greece was devastated for by huge fires not too long ago. Now all those reconstruction projects will be kind of be put into the back burner for a while as we make more guns and, and less butter i believe okay well thank you very much ron thanks for hosting me and thanks nondas for for also uh, you know being here uh, today and for your for your comments it was a huge pleasure to talk to you although the topics are unpleasant and the future is ahead of us 
you know, with even with copious amounts of futures literacy that we may cultivate, they 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 don't only inspire faith and they don't only inspire hope. Yeah. Also from my side, thank you, Casper. Thank you, Rom. Uh, I would just one more thing. Uh, what is happening now? I believe is just a, a mistake of I mean of uh, in human history. I mean, human history shows that uh, we are improving. Uh, uh the way we are living and we we are improving the the situation for 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 humanity so i believe in uh in uh, if we look back in in a decade or in two decades we'll see that that was actually a catalyst for a positive development in europe and in the world i think that will be the way we're gonna look at these uh events in the future that's the work of futurists we'll find out a way uh, of the positive out of uh, all those challenges and europe will emerge stronger and better i'm certain let's hope well again thank you so much folks it's time um for us to start uh wrapping up so please stay tuned this showing focus will be broadcasted via futures television our home of the future on television coming soon on roku tv it is going to be available freely via the Roku stick or Roku-enabled uh, TV sets. So start looking for Futures Television and do add us to our list of preferred channels. So I hope to see you again soon in another episode of In Focus. You can rest assured we have lots of great guests ready to share their views with you. And I will leave you with our institutional message. Thank you. Thank you.